designing a system of activists who hopefully, ultimately, can organically grow and organize themselves into a really solid functioning network of aligned people. Welcome, neighbors, to Hometown Earth, the podcast that brings a down-to-earth approach to all of your sustainability questions. I'm your host, Lena Sanford, here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Here, we believe that everyone can change the world. Do you believe? I'm a Midwest gal with big dreams to discover what it takes to reduce my impact on this beautiful place we call Hometown Earth. Join me every Tuesday as we navigate what actions we can take, big or small, to make a positive impact in your life and the lives of your neighbors on Hometown Earth. Hello, neighbors. Since you're listening to this podcast, it would be a good bet to say that you're interested in sustainability and climate activism. But many climate activists have been spinning their wheels in the same tracks that many other climate activists before them have made. So what's the problem? Our guest on today's show, Dave Johnson, has an idea, and that is we need a better design. Dave began his career as a trial lawyer in the courtrooms of Miami. After a decade, he came to Stanford to study design, tech, and environmental law. He has worked for several Silicon Valley companies with an increasing focus on teaching, first at Stanford Law School and then at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford, aka the D School. He is currently writing a book on design and climate activism with the working title Climate Activism by Design. In this episode, we will chat about the difference between design and design thinking, how it can help solve the climate crisis as well as overcome its limitations, and the idea of creating your own personal green print. Dr. Pradyap Singh, Director of Systems Design at the Earth Institute, said, We spend a lot of time designing the bridge, but not enough time thinking about the people who are crossing it. So without further ado, let's figure out who's crossing that bridge today with Dave Johnson. Dave, thank you so much for joining us on Hometown Earth. If you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work in design and climate activism. I started practicing law in Miami uh, some time ago, and after a while, uh, re- realized I wanted to do more. So I went back to school, uh, happened to be at Stanford to do a second law degree in an area that I was really interested in, even when I went to my primary, so to speak, law school, which was international environmental law. Uh, I was focused specifically on uh, international treaties, international agreements, compacts, et cetera, et cetera, anything that had to do with international and uh, environmental agreements. And of course, global warming was, uh, this was 30 years ago, global warming was starting to get a lot of attention in the legal community. Uh, The Montreal Protocol on ozone had just been passed a few years earlier and was starting to show some success. The big Kyoto climate uh, agreement was in the works at the time. Uh, so I took a pretty deep dive on you know those agreements, Rio, Copenhagen, Paris, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I went to work in several companies in Silicon Valley after finishing my degree, uh, one of which happened to be an organizational design firm uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, which really piqued my interest in the design component. Although I had studied uh, some elements of design when I was in school, specifically uh, software design, object-oriented analysis and design, and a little bit of fuzzy set theory. That is more technical than it needs to be. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I had gotten my, you know, my feet wet in uh, design and gotten uh, a little bit of work under my belt in a design firm. So when I came back to university to teach at Stanford, uh, I was steeped in design. I was already deeply immersed in climate issues and international environmental issues. Yeah. Um, And so it kind of became a natural to blend the two together. Uh, In fact, I even started teaching at the Institute of Design at Stanford uh, over the last five years, written some articles on this stuff, 
done some coursework, some uh, online coursework for the Global Institute for Law and Innovation out of France. And ultimately, I decided I'm going to, I need to sit down and write a book and talk about design and international environmental law, climate change. Um, And it struck me as I thought about it, that really the, the place I wanted to put my energy was in popular activism on this issue, which I think will probably, the, the reasons will come clear as we continue to speak. Yeah. Well, one thing that you mentioned, you know, been doing this 30 years ago, um, climate change is definitely a generational issue. Like it's something that has persisted over time and there's still not a clear plan. So you've seen these different, you know, negotiations happening and, Mm. and these, you know, global plans going into place, but it doesn't seem like anything's really effectively addressing it uh, to the level that we need it to be. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's exactly right. And the bottom line answer is it's structural. Uh, And it's not just the U.S. It's not even just the Western world. It's uh, across the, the globe structural in the sense that the only real locus of loci, to plural, to, to pluralize it, loci of power, the two places where the power resides to make something happen on a global scale are in governments and in corporations, Uh, corporations writ large, not any one individual, not even any 500 companies, but just the business world, the corporate world writ large around the world. Uh, And the, these two entities that have the, power to cause change to happen uh, for uh, sustainability in our world, which begins with, but does not end with bringing down uh, carbon pollution and bending the, what they call the Keeling curve that we're all familiar with, that up and right uh, curve of uh, increased CO2 concentration in our atmosphere bending that curve back down to draw down to a point where we are actually moving back to where we were. Uh, that's a huge challenge. It takes yeah. a global effort. It is ultimately going to be governments and corporations that do it, and they are not doing it. And the right. reasons they're not doing it is economics, uh, power, uh, so, you know, call it greed if you want, dollars over stewardship, et cetera, et cetera. And the only other source of power in the world, in my view, that's going to be able to cause governments and corporations to do what they need to do is the population of the world. And that means global populism, and that means global activism on climate issues. So that's how I ended up, uh, landing on activism as the necessary piece. And I'm certainly not the only one. This is not an original idea. Right. I'm not the only one who thinks this. But for <laughs> for me, uh, my small contribution is going to be bringing design and law and expertise and negotiation into the uh, toolbox for activists, hopefully to uh, get uh, more people interested in being activists on climate issues and using design principles to help them align and scale their uh, the force of their numbers okay. so that they can affect change. What does that design look like? If you could just dive into that a little bit more, because um, I think some people might be scared of that and what that might mean, you know, as far as are are you telling me what to do or um, is this just kind of an outline? If you want to talk about that and maybe even some design thinking principles there. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a really adroit, insightful question. Um, let me start with the difference between design and design thinking. Design thinking uh, is a set of tools. It's a set of methods that have been developed over decades, if not (laughs) centuries, that designers use, that uh, we now, we collectively, uh, not just at Stanford, but around the world, are teaching 
not just designers, but students across uh, disciplines mm, to use yeah. for analytic and, and problem solving purposes. Right. Because there are some things about how designers approach solving problems that really has proven utility. Um, so uh, Dominique Schiama, who uh, was and may still be the president of the Straight School of Design in Paris and Singapore, one of the best design schools in the world, uh, described it this way, which is, there is design thinking in all design, but design uh, is a different, uh, I won't say discipline, but a different task. It's a different undertaking than design thinking. Uh, so doing design uh, in architecture or fashion uh, or organi organizational behavior is something that's quite unique to that substrate, to that subject matter. But design thinking can port, can move across all of these different areas and uh, help people adopt a designer's mindset, improve their empathy, develop their creativity, improve their ability to work and collaborate on teams and then develop teams of teams, uh, grow their confidence in tackling wicked problems, in uh, working with others in a creative, uh, positive way. Uh, all of these uh, things can be improved by working through design thinking principles and design thinking tools. It's a pretty large body of knowledge, and I can't do a deep dive on it here. So. Let me just take one step back with that yeah. sort of high level description and say, from my view, the way I intend to approach in my book, the application of design thinking and ultimately perhaps some design to climate activism is this way. At the individual level, I want to give people an understanding of how design thinking works in order to guide them in a way that helps them make the first step from being passionate about climate change to finding a partner or a team to work with to actually do small projects, yeah. which in and of themselves will not necessarily solve climate change, but will be a step forward uh, in some environmental space. For me personally, Plastics are my uh, particular bugaboo. Yeah, and so yeah. I go to the beach and collect plastics. I know that that's not going to affect climate change, but what it does is it puts me in the, in, uh, the company of other people who are like-minded, who we can collaborate with. Right. And so that's at the individual level. At the next level, I, you can call the organizational or meta level, I want to teach these groups of people ways that they can network with one another, develop teams and share their interests globally. So okay. uh, I have an example in my book where uh, kids who are collecting plastics in uh, California are in touch with kids who are collecting plastics in Indonesia, uh, yeah. which has the worst plastics uh, uh garbage problem on their beaches. Of course, they right. have one of the largest stretches of beaches on the planet. Uh, and they are sharing with one another around the world through the power of internet and social media, right. and then go up one more level and apply design methods and design thinking at a strategic level where large numbers of people can come together and organize their voice to generate, to create the sort of power in numbers to then bring to bear on any number of governments or corporations to effect change. I like that different level system. I think that that's been um, something that a lot of people have tried to get across is that it needs to happen at all levels. And mm -hmm. so kind of building that design thinking um, structure, I guess, is well worth it, I would say. Mm. Um, there's a lot of what you said that I want to kind of talk about. Mm -hmm. um, I did see one quote, and I want to get your thoughts on it, just kind of breaking down, because I think design thinking still um, is, is still something that people will think is uh, hard to understand. 
but this quote, I think it was from MIT, said, coming up with an idea is easy. Coming up with the right one takes work. So design thinking is coming up with the best plan or design and then being able to implement it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do agree with that. You know, um, there's a lot of benefits, ancillary benefits that came to me from just uh, living and working in Silicon Valley. And one lesson that really stuck with me that I learned from the venture capitalists here uh, is in alignment with what the MIT quote says. And the the, the VC kind of uh, approach is, if we have uh, a company come to us that has a really good idea, but mediocre management, mm. as opposed to a, another startup that comes to us with really good proven management and a mediocre idea, we're going to invest in the latter. We're going to yeah. invest in the management. And the reason is, as after a while, you realize in startup in the startup world, the starting idea is almost never, and you could argue, probably say never, the idea that ultimately becomes successful. It's a starting point, not the end point. Right. And they want to invest in the management because they know that idea is going to change. One of the fundamentals in uh, the design thinking world about uh, developing ideas is the notion of iterating your idea via prototypes, building very rough prototypes. So design thinking started in the world of engineering and building of products, tangible things. Okay. It's, uh, and so what most of the work was being done was in designing product. Uh, you know, the, the founders of the D school at Stanford were also the founders of IDEO, which is one of the is now one of the world's most famous product design firms. And uh, so if you imagine, let's say, the design of a computer mouse, which IDEO happened to work on for Apple, uh, you have an idea, you develop the idea, but you build a prototype right away. You put the prototype in front of uh, a group of volunteer users. You have them play with it, use it, challenge it, even break it. (laughs) ask you questions, give you feedback, and then you go back and you iterate. You build another prototype based on what you've learned and you do the same thing and you do it over and over and over and over again. So any idea is a good place to start. Uh, It doesn't have to be a great idea. They're almost never great ideas right out of the gate. Uh, But even a great idea needs to be iterated uh, and in some fashion prototyped to get to a place where the designer can really feel comfortable that they've taken into account uh, as much information, as much context, and particularly as much end user feedback as possible to then get to a place where they feel like they can take the next step, uh, uh, go to market or the minimal viable product, which is sort of the buzzword of the day, the MVP, minimal viable product that they can put into the marketplace uh, and really test in uh, the marketplace. And the same holds true for designing things that are more conceptual, like I'm talking about designing a system of activists who hopefully, ultimately, can organically grow and organize themselves into a really solid functioning network of aligned people. Right. Well, so, you know, my question there is, you know, you're saying we need multiple iterations of things. And partially, I think a lot of people, you know, they need to have that uh, more holistic view um, of even any topic. But if you're working with climate activism, Um, you know, it's kind of hard to get that holistic view right off the bat. You have to learn and, you know, collaborate and doing all these things that you said. So um, how do we get to a point? I guess my first question is, how do we get to a point where um, people can have that holistic understanding of what's going on so they can make those effective decisions? And then I guess the second question is, is do you plan for in this design (laughs) um, moments of kind of reinvention and and trying to come up with new groups or new thought patterns to address the problem? Because I think some people get stuck 
in, you know, well, I'm doing this task with this group and then it goes stale. So is there Mm -hmm. any part of that that you kind of have regenerate itself um, in the plan? I like that last phrase, regenerating itself in a plan. And and ideally, the the system can organically have feedback loops that that can accomplish that. But let me go back uh, to the beginning uh, of your question, which was, um, how do we get people to a place where they have enough of an understanding of uh, the detail uh, of climate change issues, which uh, is sort of mind boggling. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, having studied it myself academically, you know, sitting in the classroom, listening to experts talk about it, including some of the Nobel laureates that uh, worked on uh, modeling climate uh, change on the computers. I think most people who are interested in climate change, who are passionate about being activists in the climate change space one way or another, I think they already know enough. If somebody is at the point where they feel that they need to or want to do something with respect to the climate change problem, they already know enough in their heart uh, to move forward. You can always gain more information, but you don't need to read the last 25 reports from the COP, the UNCCC Council of Parties conference of the parties, you don't have to go to COP26 upcoming in in uh, Scotland. Yeah, reading some of those reports uh, helps fill in the blanks. Reading magazine articles or books or stuff online that is good hard science. Reading Michael wow. Mann's book is going to be helpful. But I think no one should feel limited in their in their passion to move forward because they may not feel like they have enough scientific knowledge. The whole point of gathering a large number of people together as climate activists is everybody has their own area. So, yeah, yeah, we have plenty of both older and younger, uh, you know, burgeoning scientists in the client space who can do the hard science, who can explain, hopefully, the hard science. We don't need to all be uh, that deep and steeped in the atmospheric science, the oceanographic science to know that we have to do something. The, the scientists, in fact, will say, we don't need activists to all be spun up on the science. We need activists to go out there and put their feet in the street, uh, put their voices online and do things to move the obstacles in government and companies around the world to make the structural change happen by laws, by regulation, by norms, by international agreements, and by abiding by and enforcing those international agreements. You know, uh, in my last article, uh, I quoted an engineer whose name I've forgotten, has this really neat statement, which I think really resonates for a lot of people, which is no one person knows how to build a space shuttle, yet space Mm. shuttles get built. They're big and they're complex and no one person knows how it's done. It it gets done because of a very well-designed organization of many, many people who all do something different really well and they all share the interest in the larger ideal of spaceflight, of exploration, of building space shuttles, building rockets, and uh, empowering and furthering humankind and research and discovery. And so I see it much the same way here. Uh, I would encourage anybody who feels strongly enough about climate to not feel like they have to do more research, not be intimidated by the fact yeah. that there are going to, there's always somebody else who knows more. <laughs> there's true. plenty of people who know more than I do yeah. about climate change. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll close on, uh, on this point, which is as a group, as a global group of people, uh, of climate activists, we all have to also accept, we have to accept that people are going to have different levels of knowledge and information. And we have to get past this idea, this litmus test of idea. If 
of, well, if somebody doesn't know enough, then they can't join our group or right. they can't help our group. It, it, we need to have a, you know, a big tent. Uh, if you're passionate and, and you believe in trying to make something happen to achieve sustainability, then you should yeah. be welcome. And the more educated, smarter, brighter, more activist, more accomplished people need to accept everyone into the space. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's what scares a lot of people from getting involved is they see, you know, even social media accounts where they feel like there's tons of different information coming at them and they got to know it all. And that's not the case. You got to really kind of, like you said, have that umbrella of like, okay, we're all fighting for the same thing, but maybe you have your facet. Um, So this podcast is about um, community and, you know, everybody on this planet is all neighbors. We're all neighbors. And so I think building community in those collaborative spaces under that same umbrella is really important. Um, But saying that and then being able to get everybody, you know, in these collaborative groups is really difficult because I think um, a lot of people steer towards people who are the exact same as them. And exactly what you said, you know, building the the a spaceship you got to have different you know different genres of people coming together so how do you facilitate even those different types of groups so you know say these individuals step up a level and get involved with some community that's directed towards what they want to work towards how do you bring those different groups together then um is that part of the design of design thinking <laughs> you know do yeah. you try, try to do that it is actually, you know, the, my idea might work. My idea might fall flat on its face. I don't know, but, <laughs> uh, the idea here and, and, uh, you don't have to do a deep dive in, uh, systems theory to, to get the idea that, uh, systems develop their own momentum. They develop their own energy. They develop sometimes their own rules, mm-hmm. their own, uh, norms or what, what they call self-organizing controllers within the system right. that uh, the emergent properties that that no entity writes the rule and throws into the system. There's right. not necessarily uh, a master designer behind the yellow curtain pulling all <laughs> the cords to make this happen. Right. My idea is to encourage individuals to take that first step, as I said, join teams, have those teams align with other teams, and so on and so on and so on, so to speak. And at some point, have the group that identifies as climate activists around the world start to develop their own norms. And one of those norms I'm really emphatic about is do not exclude uh, with litmus tests or ideological tests people who share the fundamental passion towards uh, activism in in furtherance of right. reaching drawdown, lowering carbon pollution, uh, taking on government and corporations as the obstacles to uh, climate progress, and be open-minded and sharing in information, in uh, power, in control. You know, we have, you, you've seen it, I've seen it. There are probably thousands of groups, startup groups, NGOs, uh, private organizations, oh, yeah. charities online with respect to climate issues. Yeah, And they're all doing great work. But if we just go at it haphazard and everybody just is branding their own little Mm. uh, entity, they are, whether they know it or not, competing with all of the other small NGOs who are branding their own entity and their own ideology. And what's going to happen is is sort of the, the Nash problem, the Nash equilibrium problem, where everybody's chasing into this small space and we're all going to block each other from getting to where we want to go. And so somehow or another, all of us already pre-existing groups and the new individuals who want to participate need to figure out it in some way to, instead of be working you know, at 45 degrees with one another, to get in alignment and mm-hmm. share the space 
and not feel like, well, we need to raise more money or our brand is stronger. Therefore, we should lead this this movement or this protest or have the front row at COP26 in Scotland. We got to get past that. We've just got to get past that and realize we're all literally trying to accomplish the same thing. And we got to work with each other irrespective. And, And so we have to sort of accept stewardship as the overarching model uh, in a way that governments have failed to do that. They fought governments and politicians. I don't get me started. have obviously <laughs> fallen backwards into this me first, my group right. second, and the rest of you pound sand third. And yeah. it, we are going to literally kill ourselves doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm assuming we'll have to kind of read more in your book about how to address some of those issues <laughs> and get over it. Um, and yeah. kind of a little off topic, but not really. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you that you touch on in your work that I think is really interesting is almost like the ambiguity of human behavior. And so how hard it is to try to plan for uh plan for what people are going to (laughs) do. So um, I think that that's a big uh, limitation almost um, in in the work that you're doing. Would you say that that the differences in ambiguity almost in human behavior is is a hurdle to climate activism? Yes. And I'm impressed that you uh, spun that up out of uh, uh, where you read that. I don't know if you read that in in my design article, because I think that's where it is. Um, so kudos to you. <laughs> Here's the thing that I, that, that's so interesting about your question of the eight critical design abilities that we teach at the D school. And that's not to say this is the end all be all and only approach to describing design thinking or teaching yeah. design thinking. But at the D school, uh, we've developed, uh, eight critical design abilities. Number one, right on top is navigating ambiguity. Mm. It's one of the things that we teach consistently to students uh, in design classes. And I'm a big believer in managing uncertainty and learning how to work through ambiguity. Yeah. Um, And so, yes, we're going to see a great deal of uncertainty and ambiguity facing climate activism. And so at the individual level that I was referring to earlier, giving uh, individual the individual reader of the book uh, an understanding of some of the tools that we mm-hmm. teach, uh, navigating ambiguity is going to be right there at the top of the list. Right. And there are our tools that we talk about engaging uh, and embracing ambiguity and learning how to develop confidence in doing work and continuing to work on problem solving in the midst of ambiguity. We may not know Mm. where we are or where we're going in the problem, but if we're confident that doing something, following our model, doing our work will lead us out of that ambiguity and into clarity, we develop not just confidence in that, but we develop competence Mm. in the work that we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, one example would be you're on a boat. I just happen to be looking at San Francisco Bay now, so I'll use this. <laughs> Let's say you're on a boat at night in San Francisco Bay mm-hmm. and somebody shoves you overboard and you need to swim to shore. Well, mm-hmm. that it, nothing is more ambiguous than, <laughs> than that. Nothing yeah. is more uncertain. So having the ability to control your mind and think about what's going on Uh, assess where you are, look at the sky, maybe look at the horizon, and then having the confidence to start swimming in a, in the direction that you believe is the right direction. uh, It will ultimately give you more information. You swim a hundred, 200 meters, and then you look up and see where you are. You swim another 200 meters and that's how you get to shore and you get out of the ambiguous situation. Maybe that's not the world's best ex- uh, example. Maybe I it's like a little it. scary yeah. for some people. Some people, <laughs> uh, and I know a few who are are uh, very uncomfortable in the water at night. And so that kind of is a is a hard example of uh, 
and for some people, ambiguity is like very much like being in the water at night because that's yeah. a very scary situation for them. Uh, so yes, navigating ambiguity is a is a critical skill that uh, designers are taught and. Yeah. It will be addressed, yes, in the book. Good, good. Well, so um, kind of my next thought then is, you know, you talk about these different, you know, levels. Um, and in some of your work, there's talk of a green print. Is that yeah. the is that the plan? Can you tell us a little bit more about what is a green print and how it can help um, these individuals and groups? Yeah, so uh, for, for starters, I didn't come up with the idea, the, the phrase green print. It's been around for some time. The Nature yeah. Conservancy uses it, and I don't know if they invented it or not, yeah. but the Nature Conservancy came up with the idea of a green print as as a map, if you will, yeah. of a uh, usually an area of land that is subject to some kind of development. And the green print is... If you think about a blueprint for the development, then you think about a green print as the development plus green space, environmental protection, uh, pedestrian areas, uh, things that make the plate the the overall territory space more livable, more sustainable, more human friendly, more animal friendly, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That's what they call green prints, basically a strategy, a strategy map for a development. For me, I kind of borrowed that phrase and I, I refer to something called a personal green print, but it has nothing to do with what the Nature Conservancy is doing. I think of a personal green print and it's an idea in my mind that's still developing um, as what I would call a small P personal eco philosophy. So not a big capital P philosophy of, you know, are you a Kantian or are you a pragmatist or, or what have you, but just a way for somebody to, uh, who is thinking about my reader, who is thinking about becoming more committed to climate issues and climate activism to sit down and maybe jot down the things that, that move them the principles and the values they hold that move them towards being passionate about sustainability, about environmental issues, and specifically climate issues. Uh, so it could be a philosophy about one's self in the world, about one's self with respect to their community, how they feel about environment. Are they vegan? Are they vegetarian? Uh, it could involve their spirituality, it could involve their religion, uh, any sorts of things that they assemble. And it's something that I think is is probably unique, like a fingerprint to every yeah. person. And the idea is, uh, again, referencing back this idea of iteration is wherever you start in developing a personal green print, it evolves. Yeah. It evolves as we get more interested in learning more about environment stuff about climate stuff or doing, taking on tasks like, uh, you know, collecting uh, plastic on the beach right. or reading more about microplastics or being more careful about the foods that we eat or where they come from, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, this idea, I, I was thinking about where this idea came from, how it germinated in my mind. And my mind went to something, a book I read years ago when I was in school by the Australian eco-philosopher by the name of Freya Matthews. Uh, and uh, I don't remember the title of her book, but her stuff is good. And uh, I can certainly get you the title yeah. of this book and you can post it. Um, she had this example of the relationship between a whale and krill. Krill is that very small yeah. shrimp in the ocean that some whales eat in large volumes. Um, I think baleen whales particularly uh, sift for krill and they have to eat a lot of it. And she said, the world as it's set up now, this is paraphrasing, has taught us to think of the whale as one thing and krill as another. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the whale spends most of its time 
out in the ocean eating krill because it has to take on such a large amount of it. So eating krill is a part of being a whale, a baleen whale. Mm -hmm. And then she goes one step further. So if eating krill is part of being a whale, then krill is in fact part of being a whale. And so she merges, she kind of just follows this example to a point where she says, Krill is part of a whale and whale in a fashion is part of krill. And this is how she sort of comes in as in the side door of the larger philosophy of all life is part of all other life. Yep. Not just sentient beings, because krill isn't sentient. Whales are, cetaceans are, but, but krill certainly isn't. But this relationship of, you know, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, uh, the choices we make about those things are all part of who we are. And so, and and different people rightly think about these things in different ways. I am not opposed to, I do not reject people who choose to eat meat. I would like to see there be less meat eaters in the world because primarily because Cattle ranching is is such a negative impact on the climate and, right. and the environment. But uh, everybody's going to have their own view of themselves in the in uh, relationship to the world around them and the environment yeah. around them. And so Freya Matthews, you know, uh, krill as part of a whale idea really struck for me uh, the chord that that we all can have a unique, very closely held to the heart, personal green print, which will evolve and grow uh, and hopefully become a little bit more complex and heartfelt over over time. And I think this is a way of also getting people to feel more confident and uh, more willing to buy into becoming an activist with respect to environmental issues. Yeah, I love that. I, that that's a very visual thing that I can I can see how all life is connected, and um, I think that a lot of people will also like to do this sort of analysis on their own life and their own philosophies. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not like a solution; it's just kind of looking at where you stand and then coming back to that um, you know set of values or philosophy, however you want to phrase it, um, as, as you get older and as you have different experiences. Um, and with life, everybody yeah. has a different human experience. And yeah. especially if they're engaging in these groups, that that analysis of themselves or their green print is going to change as time goes on. So um, how do you think people can begin to see their green print? Is that something that uh, you're going to kind of have a template of in your book? Or how, you know, can you talk about that a little bit? I can. Yeah, I... Uh... As I said, it's still an idea that's in germination and I'm still working it out yep. uh, before I, you know, deign to <laughs> to try and teach others about it. My 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 inclination is to describe it such as I just did, uh, wow. perhaps a little bit more fully and leave people to their own devices, perhaps give them a little bit of guidance on on things to think about sort of. Uh, walk them around the block a couple of times to give them a set of things to think about, including yeah. from their own perspective. Uh, I may stop short of a template because in all of my teaching, particularly in uh, in design, I find that it's too easy as a teacher to to what we call prime students towards a particular path. Mm. Uh by saying too much or giving too much guidance to a student rather than being a little bit more intentionally vague, which oftentimes frustrates students, (laughs) Uh, particularly those who are there to to make A pluses. They they don't they don't like vague instructions. They want they want clean answers. They want to fill in the blanks and they want to get it right Right. and move on. (laughs) I I like to make it vague and challenge them to work it out on their own. So I may stop short of a template, but I'll certainly try and provide the kind of guidance 
and perhaps a few more examples like Friar Matthews to suggest the reader into the direction of of uh, thinking about because it's a very personal thing. Right. It's a it's a very personal thing, and I, I get that. Um, and so it's only it's it's its value is directly tied to how much of it emanates from the person, the reader, the student, if you will, as opposed to the instructor saying, jot down these six things and and answer the questions, you know? Yeah. You can't make somebody find their uh, drive within. They've kind of got to make those wheels turn and, and find that and solidify it within themselves um, in order to keep them, keep them going towards climate, you know, climate activism. So um, I really like that. Well, is there anything uh, that you feel like that we haven't talked about yet related to design thinking and climate activism that you want to share with the audience before we close up shop? So let me touch on something that I like to, to bring to the surface. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I learned, you know, at university, uh, from one of my mentors and that is, uh, and I don't know where this phrase came from, but something that we call the intergenerational handoff. It's, Mm. it's something that, uh, academics and universities think about a lot because the very nature of, of school, whether it's primary school, secondary, uh, university, whatever is, uh, for the older generation, the teachers, academics, adults to, to provide not just information or access to information, which is ever more available nowadays via the internet uh, independently, but also hopefully understanding and wisdom about the world and about that information to allow the next generation to move forward, or as my dissertation advisor told me, stand on the shoulders of those that came before. Uh, We have not done a very good job, in my view, at least in the U.S., in the last 50 plus years with the intergenerational handoff. Mm. Uh, And it saddens me a little bit. But each generation, mine, when mine came up and yours, when when you came up, uh, are kind of left a little bit, in my view, to our own devices to unfortunately reinvent the wheel a little yeah. bit, as opposed to really be able to stand on the shoulders and move forward, spend our energy moving forward instead of trying to figure out what those who uh, you know came before already know. You know, we we sometimes on Twitter you'll see uh, you know, people who are you know grasping for likes and follows <laughs> will say what. What letter would you write your 18-year-old self or your 21-year-old oh, self? Yeah. And, you know, those are interesting thought experiments. But the truth is we shouldn't have to write that letter <laughs> at 45. We, yeah. we shouldn't because some adult at, at age 45 should have told us what, what that letter would say when we were 18. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whether it's our parents or somebody else, that's the intergenerational handoff. And I really feel strongly about improving the intergenerational handoff and obviously, when we're talking about a problem that's going to cross six, eight, maybe 10 generations across the next 30, 40, 50 years yeah. until we get to 2050, 2060, um, we need to do a whole lot better right. with empowering the youth to move forward uh, instead of have to sort of wait and climb the ladder on their own just to take the position and learn what we know at this point in time. You know, I, I remember a quote, I think it might even be on my website of a student from NYU talking about climate change. And he said, you know, much like Greta says, Greta Thunberg says, we do not have time to wait for the older people to move out of the jobs that they hold in order for us to take the jobs that they hold and then have the power to make change. Right. And that's a really powerful statement. It is. And that's the old way of doing it is why you work your way up the ladder, then you get the power. And by the time you're 45 or 50, you actually have the power to change a corporate policy with respect to, 
single-use plastics. Well, shoot, now, you know, 17-year-olds already know what the answer is. Yeah. Stop using single-use plastics. Yeah. But how do you empower them to do it? Well, uh, again, the problem is structural, and therefore the answer has to be mass populism. Yeah. I just don't know how any how else to get around it. Mass populism and mass activism. And so that's that's where my head's at. Okay, we got to come together to do it. And you've got the design. So uh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, well, I really look forward to uh, reading your book when it comes out. Uh, what's the best way that people can connect with you and and find your book when it comes out? Well, my website is climate activism, uh, climate hyphen activism dot com. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's the book is probably a year away, maybe nine months. Uh but I'll be putting up uh, reports on progress. I'll also be putting up more blog posts that are related to things I'm writing about, give uh, you know teasers and ideas. But uh, yeah, that's the place to look. But also, it's your audience. I will absolutely be back on your show absolutely. to talk about the book when it's ready. Oh, well, I'm excited for that. <laughs> and um, hopefully, you know, everybody will get on your blog and read it because I, I really enjoy everything that you're putting there. And um, it's it's hopefully they can kind of contribute even to to what your ideas are. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Dave. I really Thanks, appreciate Leah. it. <laughs> Have a good day. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hometown Earth as much as I did. Let us know by rating and subscribing so you never miss an episode. New episodes drop every week on Tuesday. Head to the show notes linked in the episode description for more details. And let us know in the comments what you want to hear next. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And you can find more about the podcast on Instagram at Hometown Earth or connect with me personally personally at Lena Saintford. We all know change needs to happen. So let's get started right here at Hometown Earth. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.